Hey guys, Brian here. Real quick before we get started, I want to tell you about a new book coming out that I'm real excited about. It's called Concepts in Surgical Critical Care. And if you're not a surgeon, but you find yourself taking care of surgical patients in your ICU, then this book is for you. We've put together a great team, a lot of people you've heard from already on this podcast or will be hearing from in the future, who are experts in this stuff and do it every day. We go over common problems encountered in surgical patients in the ICU. We go over subspecialties, surgeries, different procedures that you're likely to see, and how you can truly be the eyes and ears of the surgeon and really manage the whole patient and not just the ventilator. And finally, we include a whole section on common procedures, including airway management, vascular access, all the way down to a basic overview introduction to point of care ultrasound and ECMO. So we think that you're really going to like this book and it's really going to be beneficial for you. We're going to put a link to it on the website at icuscenarios.com, and we hope you'll check it out. All right, everyone, welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. Uh, I am Brandon Oto, back with Brian Bowling. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed the last episode or two. Uh, I hope you're bearing with us. We had a short outage of our website due to some hackery. Uh, but it should be back up if you're listening to this. Um, and we have another great guest for you. Brian, you want to take us away? Yeah, so joining us today is Dr. Habib Sroor. Uh, Habib is an attending in the anesthesia critical care department at UK, works with me there. And we're going to do a little bit of a scenario today with in the CT ICU. So welcome to the podcast, Habib. Thank you, and thanks so much for having me, guys. So uh, it's nighttime, and you just finished getting signed out from the day team attending. You're down in the office sort of getting ready for the night, and you get a call from the night resident in the CTICU to let you know that a sort of a surprise new patient just arrived. Uh, it's a transfer from outside hospital for the lung transplant service. So uh, the lung transplant service accepted a patient and forgot to mention it to you. Uh, so you have a little bit of a surprise. Uh, so the resident tells you he's a little concerned because the patient does not look good. Briefly, it's a 68-year-old male, past medical history of co-workers pneumoconiosis, pulmonary hypertension, hyperlipidemia, coronary artery disease, status post-stents two years ago. Uh, he's a pack and a half per day smoker for the last 50 to 55 years. And he's being transferred to your unit from an outside hospital to be worked up for a lung transplant. Uh, the flight team says that he was stable when they left the outside hospital, but he began to decompensate in the aircraft. They've been sort of trying to keep him afloat until landing. He's gotten a 500 mil uh, normal saline bolus for hypotension, which has not really helped. The resident tells you he's now tachycardic, hypotensive, and just doesn't look good. What do you want to do? What do you want to know? Sounds good. So there are you know, a lot of things that are running through my head, obviously, and uh, what I try to teach the uh, the learners that I interact with uh, is that you should always think about the implications of of any of the information that you're hearing about a patient and just kind of take things as a, a forest for the trees approach. And, you know, when you have a patient who is being worked up for a lung transplant, there are a lot of implications there. And particularly someone like this who uh, is a longstanding smoker, um, and potentially uh, has had all kinds of uh, myocardial remodeling uh, that's happened over time uh, to deal with the um, with all of the uh, exposures that he's put his body through. Uh, so when it comes to managing someone like this, uh, you have to be thinking thinking ahead a little bit. 
uh, and trying uh, to decide, you know, what is the, the first and most important thing that I need to manage? And then, you know, 50 steps down the line, how do I make sure that I don't put myself into a, a terrible spot? So like with anyone that has, uh, you know, a progressive decompensation, uh, I've, you've got to lay eyes on them. Uh, so I'm going to go up my eyes on this gentleman and start to think about uh, kind of the emergency things that are going to need to happen uh, probably in fairly quick succession unless we can uh, quickly figure out what the problem is and that that problem is something that can be uh, corrected. You know, so if he's if he's coming in because uh, of an issue that we can quickly fix, no problem. Uh, you know, we can quickly fix that issue. But if he's coming in with a problem that uh, is going to take time to fix or that can't be fixed short of something like a lung transplant, then obviously that's a whole different ballgame. So, you know, this is, uh, this is someone who I would put uh, some invasive monitors in. Uh, if he's, you know, on the verge or on the precipice of getting, uh, you know, intubated and mechanically ventilated, uh, that has implications for whether we can put a central line in him, uh, you know, without touching him over the edge. But at the very least, uh, I would put an arterial line in this patient uh, so that I can get labs out of him and so that I can see his hemodynamics, at least his left-sided hemodynamics, uh, in real time. And my biggest concern is, you know, if I go to intubate this gentleman, uh, there is a, a pretty high likelihood that he's going to decompensate with intubation. Uh, and so that's going to be a place where having real-time monitoring of his left-sided pressures would be, you know, pretty key so that we're not trying to do that while we're doing chest compressions. So I would, you know, start by doing that and then do what I can to maximize his ability to keep himself afloat. So this is a situation where something like uh, high-flow nasal cannula has a whole lot of benefit. There are very few things that we in medicine can do to improve both shunt and dead space. Most of the things that we do you know, improve one thing by taking from the other. For example, if, if you have a patient who's not oxygenating well and you want to do something to improve their shunt, uh, a lot of times we would add, you know, positive pressure, so, so CPAP or something like that. And when we do that, we're obviously, uh, you know, worsening dead space. We're increasing the airway pressures um, and decreasing perfusion, you know, simplistically speaking. Uh, and so when you have someone who has problems with both, you've got to do something to mitigate that. Uh, one of the benefits of high-flow nasal cannula is that you can actually address both things. Uh, every 10 liters of flow is roughly one of CPAP. And so you can give this, this gentleman 50 or 60 liters of flow. Uh, and then you can control your FiO2 because normally, you know, if I'm giving someone 60 liters at 100% and he doesn't need 100% FiO2, then I'm also increasing his dead space. So, you know, oxygen, it turns out, is critically important, but it's also uh, only critically important insofar as you have what you need. And if you give someone more than they need, you're probably not doing them any favors. In fact, you're almost certainly doing them uh, detriment, doing them harm. What I normally say to whoever is working with me uh, is to, you know, put them on 60 liters of uh, high flow and drop that FiO2 as hard as you can uh, for a set of whatever we decide. So in this case, uh, something like 88%. Uh, and I'll even go so far as to say, I don't want to see this patient's uh, uh, oxygen saturation higher than 90% unless they're on uh, room air, unless they're on 21% FiO2 on the high flow. Um, and the idea behind that is to maximize you know, our respiratory physiology, try to make sure that he can, when he takes a 500cc breath, 
as much of that breath is effective ventilation as possible. So a lot of times I'll start with high flow nasal cannula um, and go from there. We can see what his numbers look like uh, once we have an arterial line in. Now, and when you say that uh, an overly high FiO2 increases the dead space, do you mean due to vasodilation of the pulmonary circulation? Yes, exactly. So when you, um, it's, it's somewhat difficult to conceptualize, but what I try to tell people is if you take, uh, you know, if you take your hand and you put it on your chest and spread your fingers out, you know, each, each finger represents, you know, one liter of cardiac output, for example. And if you're sitting up, um, you know, gravity has impacts uh, on where that blood goes. So if I have that cardiac output, and then I take in a bunch of oxygen, the pipes that are sitting down low are going to open up. And so anything that was getting blood flow up at the top is now not. It's, you know, headed down to where uh, the path of least resistance. And so you end up having these marginal zones that were getting perfused, but just barely. And now they're not because you've you know, opened up the pipes unnecessarily in other parts of the lungs. That's interesting. I think we think about hypoxic vasoconstriction sometimes, but not so much of the opposite. Exactly, yes. So you kind of give the resident some instructions and say, you know, I'm coming up, but he says, all right, I'll, I'll put a A-line in and we'll get the high flow set up. So you get up there and you find he is uh, in fairly moderate distress. He's sitting up in the bed, leaning forward to Kipnik. He's working pretty hard to breathe. Uh, he's tacky in like the one teens. Uh, his blood pressure on the cuff that resident's working on getting the A-line in, the blood pressure on the cuff is 85 over 45, uh, which gives you a mean of 58. Uh, they're still getting the the high flow set up, so he's on 100% non-rebreather right now, satting 85. Uh, all you have for access is you have an 18 in the left AC and a 20 in his right hand. The resident said he's concerned that he won't tolerate laying flat to get a, a central line put in. Yeah, and those are kind of the, the things that you'd expect to hear uh, with, with this case prior to, to even heading up. And so you have to think about, as far as access, um, you know, if you walk in there and it looks like he's just, he's definitely going to need to be intubated, uh, which is kind of what it sounds like here, um, then you can just plan to put in a central line after intubation. Um, otherwise, you need to think about uh, whether you need to put in a groin line uh, or whether it's uh, urgent enough that you don't even have time uh, to do that, but the patient is decompensating quickly in front of you and you want to have some way to reliably give medications, uh, in, which, in which case you can obviously consider an IO. Uh, but if you're going to, going to be doing that, um, you obviously need to consider the patient's mental status and whether or not you're going to be causing more distress, uh, which could send you down uh, a pretty bad path with someone who's already breathing too fast and too hard. Um, but those would be other things to consider there. And, uh, you know, in this case, uh, what I would be doing is also getting uh, medications ready to help optimize this patient's condition. He's already hypotensive. He's tachycardic. Obviously, there's a broad differential here, um, depending on uh, the timeline of how things happened, what the, what exactly his presentation was, be, you know, should we be thinking about infection? Should we be thinking about uh, pulmonary embolism? Uh, or should we be just thinking about uh, the chronicity of his own uh, uh, chronic conditions that go on his, in his day-to-day -day life? But um, remembering that tachycardia uh, frequently is the right ventricle's response to stress. Uh, it's obviously 
uh, an indicator of all kinds of other things too. Uh, but if we're concerned about this patient uh, having, uh, getting blood flow across his pulmonary circulation because of his chronic condition, um, then that's uh, something to consider. So I would be thinking in this case about starting medications for him uh, to try to support him. I would also be thinking about, uh, if not doing uh, a bedside echo, uh, to see what we can see if this is uh, if this patient's lungs are as bad as they uh, as they're as, as is being reported uh, you may not be able to get much uh, in the way of imaging in most of your views uh, with transthoracic echo uh, but if I if I were to take a look and I had concerns about uh, his right heart and whether his left heart is filling well uh, what his pulsatility looked like uh, you know if my resident is having trouble placing an arterial line I've got to be. I've got to consider how much cardiac output this gentleman actually has on the left side, um, and so in that case, I would be thinking about starting him on medications, uh, things like epinephrine, uh, to try to support the right heart, uh, and also his blood pressure and his left heart. If I'm thinking more along the lines of uh, of sepsis, then I obviously need to be thinking about going down the surviving sepsis uh, pathway. And one simple way, and I. I Try to teach this to my to my learners. Um, you know, take one one data point when, at least in the case of an attending, uh, when you have a team and you have to you know rely upon other people uh, to to clue you in uh, to situations where you need to pay more attention or where you can just you know walk away for now. Um, take one data point out of each data set and use that as your clue. And when it comes to the physical exam. Uh, particularly in uh, these sick patients like we're talking about, uh, I always touch the feet. Um, that gives you all kinds of information about the patient. If I walk in and I touch his feet and they're cold, uh, I'm going to be headed down a very particular path. And if I touch his feet and they're quite warm, uh, I'm heading down another path. So in, in the case of cold feet, uh, I'm worried about cardiogenic components to this. He may still be septic. This may be septic cardiomyopathy. Uh, but right now, one of the rate-limiting steps is going to be his heart, and so I'm going to be thinking more along the lines of epinephrine and headed down um, you know, a pathway like uh, the Savior algorithm. In the other situation, if his feet are warm, I'd be thinking more along the lines of Levo, you know, Vaso, these kinds of things, and trying to get him get his blood pressure supported. In either case, the right ventricle does not like systemic hypotension, and so uh, we want to make sure we get that addressed. Yeah, okay, so... Your resident is struggling a little bit to get the A-line um, because palpable pulses are very weak. Um, his feet are cold, um, and you really can't even feel pulses in his feet. While, while uh, he's working on the A-line, you grab the echo. Um, yeah, you can't see really anything in the parasternal views at all. Uh, it's all just long. Um, and he's belly breathing and sitting up and, and you can't really get a sub-xiphoid view, but you can get a decent apical view. And what you see is moderately to severely dilated RV. Uh, the LV ap does appear underfilled and, and pretty hyperdynamic. Sounds good. And so this is a situation where, you know, uh, some people make the mistake of seeing this hyperdynamic LV uh, and focusing on uh, something like Levo. Well, I, I shouldn't say make the mistake. This is what some people do. I, I don't uh, follow that path. Um, while Levo is, is great in certain circumstances, um, one difference between it and some of the other uh, agents, uh, particularly the ones that we use 
uh, in the Savior algorithm uh, is that uh, there are receptors in the uh, pulmonary circulation for norepinephrine. Uh, and so you end up increasing RV afterload potentially unnecessarily uh, by using that first. I'm not saying not to use it at all, uh, but using it first, uh, you might cause yourself trouble. And so in this case, uh, one thing that I like to teach the residents that kind of comes from the, um, the savior algorithm is uh, the rule of eights. And I, I, it's just a simple way to remember uh, kind of what, what seems to be the best combination of medications when you have an unknown, uh, but what you do know is that the RV is, is probably struggling. Um, and the rule of eights is just, uh, you know, epinephrine at 0.08. Uh, dopamine at eight, uh, vasopressin at uh, up to 0.08, and uh, inhaled prostacyclin, so something like Velitri, uh at eight mLs an hour. And it's just a simple uh, rule to kind of remember that this is something that uh, if you have this difficulty, you can use these doses, and they are the highest doses you can use without getting uh, into um, alpha stimulation, RV afterload stuff. Um, now it's not uh, without its level of uh, controversy. Uh, the studies related to these agents and what doses are used, they vary significantly and obviously not every patient is the same. Uh, but this is just a nice simple uh, thing that I try to, uh, to teach when it comes to these cases. You kind of start with the first one and, and go down the line. And so with this patient, I would start him on uh, epinephrine. I'd probably start him at 0.08. And I would uh, back off slowly if he's hypertensive. And if we get any tachydysrhythmias, obviously that's concerning. Um, but I find that epinephrine in particular uh, at that dose, um, and you know, even more safe at around 0.05, uh, if you have a patient who's in an extremis and it's a cardiogenic phenomenon, uh, starting them at that dose of epinephrine more often than not helps them so much that you don't, you know, you don't push them into any further difficulty when it comes to dysrhythmias. Uh, dopamine is a little bit more of a, of a gamble, uh, but the same thing when it comes to those lower doses, uh, it, it doesn't generally cause a problem. All right, so uh, your resident finally gets an A-line in and you send off a blood gas and it comes back. Uh, his pH is 7.3, his CO2 is 55, his PO2 is 58, and his bicarb is 26. Um, at this point, he is he's very labored. Uh, he's unable to speak in complete sentences, really even in complete words almost. Um, and he tells you that he's scared that he's dying. Uh, and so at this point, he's, he's on the high flow at this point, um, but it, it's utility seems to be losing. Okay. So um, there are a few things that you get out of that blood gas. Uh, one is that fortunately, it looks like he hasn't decompensated from uh, a systemic cardiac output um, standpoint. So, you know, if you had uh, if you had told me a blood gas that involved a pretty big bicarb drop, uh, I would be much more concerned. Now, obviously, his baseline bicarb is probably you know much higher than this, but it's not a situation where he has lost buffering capacity, for example, where his bicarb is so low uh, that he's really on the precipice. But uh, the biggest concern here is that his pH is already uh, on the downtrend. And most likely, you know, if you walk in and look at a patient like this, you could probably estimate his minute ventilation. And it's probably something like 25 liters a minute, if not more. And this is spontaneously ventilating. So 
you know, he's an extremist. I'm about to uh, intubate him. And if I go to do that uh, by pre-oxygenating him and then paralyzing him and then, you know, crossing my fingers and, and putting the tube in, uh, there are a lot of implications there, especially if he did have a minute ventilation of 25 to 30 uh, spontaneously ventilating. Now I put him on positive pressure ventilation, having been paralyzed. Uh, there is no way that I'm going to be able to match that minute ventilation. Remember that once you put someone on positive pressure, uh, the dead space to tidal volume ratio goes up by, you know, at least 50%. Uh, so if he was uh, breathing, you know, 400 cc tidal volume, uh, you know, 300 of it or something like that is probably effective ventilation. Uh, but once I put him on the ventilator at 400 cc tidal volume, uh, only about 200 of that is going to be effective. So now if I'm trying to match this minute ventilation with positive pressure, it's going to be, uh, I'm going to have a heck of a time doing it. And so if his pH was already 7.3, you can imagine what's going to happen after 30 seconds to a minute of apnea and then further hypoventilation, at least relative to what he was doing on his own. Um, and that's where you kind of get into this uh, intubation code spiral with patients uh, like this. Yeah. So for if listeners out there have never had the experience of intubating a failing right heart, um, it's a pretty terrifying situation most of the time. Um, go over real quick, if you would, why, why is that? Because I feel like I run into people, particularly who practice in environments where they don't see this a lot, who don't really understand why it's so bad to jump to intubation in somebody like this. So there's, there are a lot of different factors at play. Um, and when you, if you just stop for a second and think about, uh, what you are doing to the patient, uh, in this circumstance. So the right heart generally is a volume pump. It is not a pressure pump. Uh, now that changes in, in chronic conditions like this gentleman's, but for the most part, it's not a big muscular pump. So if, uh, if the patient is doing all kinds of things on their own to try to breathe, if their left heart is still working enough, they can drive what, what uh, I try to call the lung pump. So when you breathe in spontaneously with negative pressure, if you have intact valves in your heart, you're going to draw blood into the lungs from the right heart. And when you breathe out, you're going to push that blood into the left heart. And so to some degree, you actually help uh, move blood forward in right heart failure if you still have a left heart that works. And this is uh, something that you can see uh, demonstrated in patients who are uh, in this situation just by watching them breathe. And you can see their respiratory rate will actually start to look more like a heart rate. Now, it's a slow heart rate, but they're going to breathe really fast. Uh, the problem is that there's no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. So these patients uh, can't continue to supply their left heart uh, with blood and with energy to keep everything running uh, without the right heart contributing. And uh, one analog an analogous situation to this, if you've ever taken care of a um, congenital heart, especially an adult congenital heart who had uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and then has undergone the stages of repair, uh, those patients lack uh, you know, a ventricle that uh, pumps through the lungs. And so they are profoundly dependent on this lung pump phenomenon. And in their case, they don't even have valves. Uh, so they're even more dependent on uh, the situation um, being maintained with negative pressure. Because if you start putting positive pressure in there, 
Uh, there's nothing, there's no check valve to keep things from just moving backwards. And in the case of these, uh, of this patient, uh, or patients in general, as you asked, uh, you put them, you put them on the ventilator. And now, not only have you taken away the negative pressure drive that brings this blood back and uh, back and forth past these valves, uh, now you've added positive pressure in there and increased the afterload for the right ventricle. So the right ventricle, which is already not a, a pressure pump, is now having to pump against pressure. And in this case, it's probably going to be a lot of pressure. Uh, the patient was breathing a lot, and you're going to have to try to match that with, the, with positive pressure uh, in diseased lungs. Obviously, it depends on other factors, but in general, you're adding a lot of pressure. The right ventricle has to push against it. Now, at the same time, uh, the situation we mentioned before, you're hypoventilating relative to what they were doing before. So now the patient's pH is dropping precipitously. Uh, the, the heart is not happy with a pH that starts to drop below 7.2. Uh, so endogenous catecholamines or even exogenous, anything you're giving to the patient is going to have less effect. Uh, and so that adds to the spiral. Um, at the same time, the same time you've paralyzed this patient, uh, so that takes away uh, again their drive to breathe or any uh, muscular effort that they're trying to um, to put in. But it also uh, modulates some of the tone uh, in their um, in their circulation, and that has impacts on all this as well. So you take away all of these things kind of all at the same time, uh, and then you know cross your fingers that the patient's going to come out of it on the other side. Uh, okay. And, you know, in many cases they do, uh, but in many cases you end up with, you know, the typical intubation code. A lot of times, uh, you, if you are ever with me during a situation where there's an urgent intubation, uh, I specifically mention to the respiratory therapist or whoever is going to be bagging the patient uh, to, to take it easy, rapid, shallow breathing, uh, none of these huge, you know, uh, massively forceful and voluminous breaths for these patients right off the bat, uh, because they're they're sitting on the edge. And if you imagine uh, all of a sudden interrupting blood flow into the left heart, that's a great way to become pulseless, right? If the if the left ventricle isn't filling, uh, and it starts to pump, you know, it's pumping a hundred and something times a minute, uh, and all of a sudden there's nothing coming out of it. You go into an even further spiral where you're not getting uh, blood into the coronary circulation. Uh, you're not filling vascular beds. Um, and as I said, the, the right heart reacts even more poorly when the left heart is empty. Uh, and if that's, this is one of those things that uh, I would encourage you to encourage the listeners um, to take a look uh, at some of the physiology behind that and what happens to the interventricular septum uh, when the left heart is empty and the right heart is full. We've, we've mentioned this savior protocol a couple of times now. Um, I feel like we should probably discuss for people who don't know what that is. Um, what, what is the savior protocol? So the, um, the savior algorithm is, uh, is just this, this uh, brainchild of, uh, of a few of us that um, we started seeing, we started getting consulted fairly regularly uh, on patients just like uh, the one being mentioned here either from uh, you know, the pulmonary service in terms of the uh, pre-transplant patients or from the cardiology service. And uh, we noticed you know, after having many of these patients uh, you know, in a row that there's really no uh, algorithm uh, related to the physiologically difficult airway. So there's, a, you know, there's the anatomically difficult airway, it's well-defined, there's an airway algorithm for those patients. 
but with the physiologically difficult airway, that, that doesn't seem to exist. And so uh, after uh, you know, many, many cases, we came up with this uh, idea of the SAVIOR algorithm. And uh, SAVIOR stands for uh, Spontaneous Awake Ventilation, uh, Inotropic Support, and Optimized Respiratory Physiology. Um, I put you know some of the concepts into uh, an acronym generator, and, <laughs> and and Savior came up, and I thought, hey, that's a pretty cool one. Um, but the the idea behind it is that it puts as much of the physiology and the the concepts here, as much of those things together as possible, to try to minimize the impact of putting someone on the vent uh, when they're in these circumstances. Basically, the, the SAVIOR algorithm is divided into three sections. So the spontaneous awake ventilation, uh, the idea being to uh, do everything you can to preserve the lung pump and to minimize the effect on the systemic pressures by giving someone sedation. So you try to avoid sedation. You use things like lidocaine, which does have some, uh, some effect on the patient's uh, mental status, uh, can actually be a little bit of a, uh, an anxiolytic. Uh, but you use it for topicalization. It's also good uh, to prevent um, ventricular dysrhythmias in patients that are at high risk for that when you're uh, putting them through this. Uh, use the fiber optic scope with uh, a Parker Flex tube if possible, using oxygen to pneumodissect uh, to get the tube in, and then slowly titrating in uh, positive pressure when it comes to the ventilator. So you start on um, uh, pressure support and titrate the PEEP and the pressure support slowly and see how the patient's hemodynamics respond to it. Uh, the I is for inotropes, and so that's the, the more controversial part of this where uh, we try to use uh, the rule of eights that I mentioned, so epinephrine, dopamine, uh, vasopressin because it spares the uh, right-sided circulation, um, and the inhaled uh, prostacyclins uh, to minimize, uh, to improve the shunt and dead space. So that's the other thing besides high-flow nasal cannula that can kind of improve both of those things. Um, and then the uh, OR is the optimized respiratory physiology. And so that's where uh, we think about uh, doing everything we can to uh, minimize dead space and shunt. Uh, so avoiding uh, paralytic uh, for these patients, um, improving the um, dead space to tidal volume ratio with whatever interventions that we can do. That's the, that's the summary of the, of the SAVIOR algorithm. There's an actual algorithm that you can see in, the, in our you know, published letter to the editor that shows kind of the stepwise uh, way to approach this. And there are more specifics, obviously, that you can uh, consider with each patient. All right, folks, we're going to call it quits here. Uh, check back in in two weeks to hear part two of our interview. Thank you.